Welcome to episode 6 of the Narrative for Social Justice podcast or the N4SJ podcast. I'm Torsha Ghoshal, your host for today. I'm an assistant professor of English at California State University, Sacramento. Our guest today is Nilo Kader, who is a scholar and teacher of contemporary literary and cultural studies of the Global South with a focus on the Indian Ocean world. Nilofar, first of all, thank you for joining us on this podcast. Thank you so much, Torsa, for inviting me to the podcast on Narrative for Social Justice. I'm really excited to be here and talking with you today. The first question I have for you is, could you elaborate a little more on your current work? I'm currently Assistant Professor of English and International and Global Studies at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. I'm also an affiliate faculty to the program in the African-American and African Diaspora Studies, which is the institutional home of a multidisciplinary research network on East Africa and the African diaspora in the Indian Ocean world. And prior to coming to UNCG, I was living in Western Mass, where I did my PhD in English at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and also studied um, during my undergraduate years at Pace University in New York, where I focused on English and film and screen studies. So what are some of the current research projects that you are working on? My current research project is primarily my first book manuscript, Afro-Asian Imaginaries, Global Capitalism in Indian Ocean World, which is a revision of my dissertation project. An early attempt for me to figure out what Indian Ocean Literary and Cultural Studies looks like as, as a sort of subfield. What have you discovered so far? What I've discovered so far is that in most institutions in the United States, which I'm using as an example because it's the academic context responsible for disciplining me, there's very little, if any, formalized space for Indian Ocean Studies. My earliest forays into the subfield were accidental at best. But the place where I was awakened to the possibility of it was in New York at an exhibition called Africans in India from Slaves to Generals and Rulers. Um, at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, which was curated by then um, director Sylvia Duf and Kenneth X. Robbins, who has a large collection of Indian Ocean materials. So returning from that eye-opening exhibit, just as I was embarking on my comprehensive exam preparations, I looked for other related materials and found that a couple of years prior, the Schomburg's digital projects had hosted another exhibition called The African Diaspora in the Indian Ocean World, which was curated by Omar H. Ali. These two public-facing projects are the first places that named the Indian Ocean world as such to me, um, and were particularly important to me because they named it in relation to Africa and the African diaspora. So I start here because as much as the Indian Ocean Studies is a space for study in the academy, my own connections to it are not only a formal education, And that's really meaningful as a person that was born in an Indian Ocean port city and has family members who have worked in transnational shipping their whole lives and who realized her professional relationship to it at one of the leading institutions of study for the African diaspora. That makes the stakes for this kind of work really high because I have an intimate relationship to the kind of climate disasters, for instance, that have been shaping the living conditions of Indian Ocean communities for some decades now. The questions of unfree labor that animate my research interests come from witnessing the extreme precarity and grievous conditions of the bonded that remain prominent in South Asia 
and from Black studies approaches to the histories and afterlives of chattel slavery. So in that sense, I've always known the practice of Indian Ocean studies and the methods of it to be really plural, even if for much of my career, I found myself in a traditional and colonial discipline of English. You mentioned that you were born in a port city and had a family working in the uh, shipping trade. So where were you born? I was born in Karachi in Pakistan and lived there on and off during my childhood. So not for that much time, but I remember being a kid and waiting for my mamu, my mother's brother, who worked for a Scottish shipping company you know, mentioned that he was waiting for the jihaz to come in. So like, first too, the idea of the jihaz being a shipping term, like shipping across the ocean term, rather than the vehicle which we, with which we take air flight, right? So for me, in that sense, um, the word jihaz, in, which I knew to be in Urdu, but turns out the jihaz is also a ship in Swahili. So already, seems like there was this sort of formation of like a really linguistically plural site well before it became my professional area of study, right? So like I didn't end up studying there in part because um, my uncle worked for a shipping company. But when I made the connection that I was interested in an oceanic approach to literary studies, all of a sudden it felt like the past of my life was like falling into a tidy story that actually wasn't so tidy on what, as it was unraveling. Your mention of jihaz um, actually reminds me of uh, a couple of things. One is that in my mother tongue, Bengali, jahaj almost never refers to the airplane. It refers to the ship. But also, I guess I was in my graduate program when I learned that there was this genre of music in the Caribbean called the Chutney Soka. And uh, one of the famous songs is like Jahazi Bhai because uh, the indentured laborers who were being shipped from places like India and, and Pakistan, like the subcontinent at the time, um, they would uh, form these kinds of communities between them and uh, they would um, create their own music and so on. It's really fascinating how the past uh, remains present in everything we do. You were talking about... Uh, Indian Ocean Studies. And in that context, I wanted to ask you, what are some of the stakes of Indian Ocean Studies today? And uh, perhaps related to that, uh, you mentioned methods as well, you know, um, learning certain methods or even improvising certain methods as you went, I suppose. So what are some of those methods? What are the stakes? I think the stakes and methods of Indian Ocean Studies are really varied based on who's participating because there can be so many people with really different agendas. Last spring, I co-organized this conversation series on Indian Ocean Currents and the international relations scholar Lena Ben Abdallah, who's at Wake Forest, told our audiences that as a scholar of international relations, she has a lot of trepidations about engaging with the framework of Indian Ocean Studies as it's articulated within her own field. And she said, I'm quoting her here, it's not always a good sign if a topic makes it to the top of the interest in IR, because that typically means that there's a very alarmist urgency, often framed around a security threat and the kind of power politics that accompany that. So what ends up happening is that folks override nuance in the favor of generalizations. Mm -hmm. um, so if in IR, it's Indian Ocean Studies is sort of the framework of 
sort of hegemonic thinking that in my own relationship to Indian Ocean Studies, it's not at all the case. For me, I found that really provocative and important to keep in my own purview, though, because sort of demands of the university are tied up in those kinds of power politics. I think the area studies model may be on a certain kind of wing, but that doesn't mean that an interregional arena, as Shugata Bose calls the Indian Ocean, needs to supplant it with the same kind of sort of imperial logics. And so whereas Indian Ocean Studies has been a site of plurality for me because of how it allows me to sort of both think about European colonization across Africa and Asia, but also not be limited to its timeline, to its geography, and the normative relationship of colony metropole that for a long time has shaped post-colonial literary studies, or even the latest moniker, Global Anglophone, mm-hmm. under which scholarship <laughs> mine is often gathered, um, it, it means that I, I carry even Indian Ocean studies as not in, in a non-romantic way, right? Like it's, right. it's not the only answer. It is not only the site of resistance and revolution. It's also a site of violence and power contestations. This language of Indian Ocean studies or the framework, and I understand these are all plural. When did it start becoming available to you or like how did you discover it? Because uh, you said you went to those exhibitions um, mm-hmm. around the time you were doing your comprehensive exams. Um, it, it was during my comps where I basically was like, OK, I think I'm doing a second round of coursework because I had never taken a class on, you, you know, whatever Indian Ocean studies might be. So I first had mm-hmm. to think about like, OK, like where in the academy are people? doing work that sort of like legibly gather themselves as Indian Ocean Studies. And what I found is that largely it was historians. Oh, okay. um, that meant reading a lot of Indian Ocean historiography. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I found that historians sort of had most legibly gathered themselves under the sort of subfield of Indian Ocean Studies. Sometimes there were classes, like history seminars that were offered on Indian Ocean Studies. So basically, there was a lot of reading, and that revealed to me that like, since the 1970s or so onwards, there's been historical scholarship happening that sort of tries to think together the Indian Ocean. But even within that framework, you know, folks were limited by the, the partitioned model of area studies. So there were folks who mm-hmm. were doing, especially in the early work, focused on sort of the African coast of Indian Ocean, where there was a big... South Asia contingent of Indian Ocean Studies, and then also Southeast Asian Studies, right? And there was very little for quite a while that was looking at the sort of cross-oceanic, trans-oceanic relationships between these spaces. Um, I think some of that work is newer and is pointing to the sort of transnational turn or global turn, various kinds of academic study as well. But I think it also has a lot to do with languages. Like really, mm. you need a lot of languages to work well, I think, in, in <laughs> Indian Ocean Studies. And acquiring those languages takes time. Um, it depends on who has access to the academy, too, I think. Th- those factors of Access and resources, I think, are really important to Indian Ocean Studies becoming a sort of knowable intellectual project for folks to engage. Mm-hmm. And I think to to my colleague Lena Benabdala's point, then it's easy to see how it becomes a hegemonic frame, right? Because U.S. Empire has a lot more resources to 
both to sort of like militarize various Indian Ocean cities and communities, but also to to craft the political project that allows for that kind of militarization. True. So since you got introduced to these frameworks and started engaging with them, and you mentioned that you found more historians engaging with a framework like that over the few years since your comprehensive exam and now that you yourself are a faculty, do you see more literary scholars engaging in the framework? And when you are talking about methods of Indian Ocean studies, how are the methods of literary scholars different from those of historians? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the place where, in my experience, Indian Ocean literary studies has been most vibrant is actually in South Africa, where there are a number of scholars who are really focused on thinking about the African Indian Ocean and the Southern Oceans broadly. There are a couple of projects at the University of Witzwaterstrand and the Wiser Institute that's affiliated to that where folks like Isabel Hoffmeyer is probably one that um, audiences know well have been leading the kind of thinking on this. And I think too, like my own experience is researching and presenting work in East Africa at the East African Literary and Cultural Studies Biennial Conference in 2017 in Tanzania was an important place for me to meet Africa-based scholars who were engaged in this project. I think it's a lot more prominent in, in those institutional contexts than it is in the U.S. And I think what I would say that literary studies scholars can bring to bear And I think contemporary literary scholars in particular is that what I found in the sort of historiography of the Indian Ocean world is that there was a tendency to temporally mark off the Indian Ocean world as having a meaningful existence at the time of decolonization and independence Mm -hmm. of post-colonial states in Asia and Africa. And so what that really pointed to is is the enormity of the European colonial archive in that historiographic research, Mm. which is a really important source, but it isn't the only source. And so I'm very curious about the kinds of work that those of us who are looking at materials that are published or that are circulating after the 1940s and 50s. Um, including scholars who are working on the global Cold War as really thinking about the role of Indian Ocean Studies as as a really rich site of study. The 1955 conference in Bandung happens in Indonesia, where delegates from across Africa and Asia are there. Like, how can we say that the connectivities of the Indian Ocean world ended mm. with Europeans leaving, quote-unquote, leaving the picture? <laughs> yeah. Now, when you are pursuing research in the field, what are some methods you use and, you know, methods that you may be using even for the book project that you mentioned? Yeah. So in terms of writing the dissertation, I really defaulted to the sort of, um, I want to say canonical, like, (laughs) of um, post-colonial literary studies, which is the novel. So in my dissertation, there was a near exclusive focus on on the novel as, as a place to study the relationships of different communities across the Indian Ocean and that I was thinking with the work of Mugugi Wakiyango and Amitav Ghosh, mm-hmm. um, writers that are sort of, you know, very well known in the post-colonial literary studies canon, but I kind of wanted to read them in this other formation. Okay. I think, they, you know, like novels like Wizard of the Crow, um, Ghosh's Ibis Trilogy, like really mm-hmm. lend themselves 
um, well to that kind of analysis. But I was also looking to broaden writer, my own sense of writers who I felt like had been left out of sort of the early postcolonial writers mm-hmm. um, canonization. And some folks know M.G. Vasanji, who's now based in Canada, mm-hmm. um, but it is part of an Indian diaspora in East Africa and he, he moves to Canada, but as well as um, authors like Abdul Razak Gurna, who is based in the UK now, and I think, you know, is well read in African literary context, but often not in post-colonial literary context. So I kind of found myself taking a view of who all was being read in these sort of containers and trying mm-hmm. to take them out of those containers, not necessarily to put them in a new container, right? Um, but to see what happens when I read somebody like um, Abdul Razak Gurna's 1994 novel Paradise in conversation um, with a Malayalam writer um, mm-hmm. who writes under the pen name of Benjamin, yeah. who worked for a long time as, I believe, an engineer, if I'm remembering it right, in, in the Gulf. And, mm-hmm. and like now I think is living again in India, but, you know, isn't professionally trained as a writer. So I think the, all of those um, sort of like differences in the professionalization of the career where one is situated in the literary canon, a nationalist canon, an area studies canon, was to just like move them all out of those spaces and see what happens when they begin to dialogue with one another. Um, and then I also was trying to attend to um, you know, a newer generation of writers, folks like Tosh Ah, Mohsen Hamid, who now are, I think, the right. Mohsen Hamid especially, you know, like is well known. But again, Indian Ocean Studies kind of allows me to think at multiple scales. So like I can right. attend to the nuances of like how these texts are in conversation with particular national histories, mm-hmm. but not isolate them to that or how they are embroiled in thinking about global relationships without sort of excavating them out of the national particularity. And so I think it allows multiple scales of relation, which I found to be really rewarding and frustrating. <laughs> There's, you know, it presents a lot of knots in how one navigates the literal research and writing of the work. This problem of scale or the possibilities that scale brings, you know, applies to, I guess, a lot of different kinds of frameworks we're using in contemporary literary studies. And as you mentioned, global anglophone is a term that people use to just talk about all of these fields at once and so on. So um, so the Indian Ocean world, uh, for sure, has been an important part or played an important part in shaping as well as being shaped by global capitalism. What are some narratives around the Indian Ocean world that you started encountering once you were researching in this field? Yeah, so one of the sort of larger goals of my research is is to tell a more nuanced story about the operations of global capitalism and especially how cultural narratives are sort of part and parcel of its machinery. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing that I find in the novels that I studied um, and am studying is that there is as trenchant a critique of the post-colonial state as there is of European colonization, or that those critiques are really in strong relationship with one another. Um, Mm -hmm. And maybe part of that has to do with the fact that the literary works that I'm looking at are written really in the later 20th century and in the early 21st century, where some of the romance of the early post-colonial nation-state and its possibilities has really waned compared to earlier post-colonial literary studies texts, right? Where 
they were written um, simultaneous to anti-colonial resistance and revolution. So the possibility mm. of the nation state and independence of the nation state loomed really large. But what I find in that the critique of the post-colonial nation state in, in sort of lockstep with the critique of European colonization does is that it forces a sort of revitalization of a history that's been buried, a more complex history of what was the space that European colonizers encountered as they were approaching and settling in the Indian Ocean world. And what I, I think what I find these texts doing is really not romanticizing that either. Like there, mm. there's both a, a real, and of course not all of these texts are doing all of this in the same way, right? But right. I think there's this overarching focus on a sort of like plural life, a contested life lived at all historical moments that one might turn to and that it is important to attend to um those in an unromantic way, right? So we're not on this linear timeline toward mm. forever progress, but also that in jettisoning the past is also a very dangerous thing. Like, okay, we want to jettison the violence of the colonial period, but that doesn't mean that some of the structures um, that exist vis-a-vis that colonialism or through earlier sort of um, political and community social formations mm. have all disappeared as well. So in, you know, like to use a like really specific example in thinking about um, the forms of unfree labor that are very much a part of circuits of contemporary global capital, they have much longer histories everywhere, including in the Indian Ocean. So really trying to think about racialization in relation to caste formation and how caste is both like solidified and changed by European colonization, I think, is a really important part of that study. The kind of roots that um, labor migrants today take look uncannily similar to roots that have long been trafficked across the Indian Ocean world, both Mm -hmm. in terms of commodities like different kinds of wood, like tea Mm -hmm. um, and spices, of course, but also like humans as commodities. So slavery in the Indian Ocean that predates European colonization, I think, is really critical to thinking about the African diaspora in South Asia in particular, um, but across other parts of Asia as well. As a literary scholar encountering these narratives, how do you envision your research uh, intervening in them? Yeah, I mean, I think that's um, a remarkably important question and one that I don't think like many literary scholars are often invited to think about. Um, and I, I wonder if does that question feel more urgent to me? Because if I'm thinking about forms of unfree labor in the contemporary, will there actual unfree laborers to contend? with and like Mm. is there something that my research can do that actually makes a meaningful material difference in their lives Mm. and at that point I think I like I have to know the limits of my own capacity which is to say that my monograph will not change the material (laughs) conditions of thousands of unfree and precarious workers across the Indian Ocean world but I do think that there is a role um, culture plays such an important mediating role in terms of what interpersonal and intercommunity relationships look like, in terms of what kinds of national and transnational and global stories are told. So I think it's very incremental work. I think it has to be um, really collaborative work with people in different aspects of our social life, our political and social Mm -hmm. life. But I think that one thing that Indian Ocean Studies um, teaches me is that we have to 
work with a lot of humility and around community building. And I don't know mm-hmm. if humility or community building are formally considered methods, but they ought to be, especially when um, academics carry this like really vexed position of working within, you know, like we work in the bowels of empire, um, mm-hmm. especially those of us who are at us-based institutions and so i'm I, I guess i'm really attuned to how my my own work can be mobilized by people who have very different politics than my own but i do think that there is a role that both the making of cultural narratives and the interrupting of hegemonic cultural narratives mm. has to play so i would hope that sort of what one thing you know to sort of think within the framework uh, the circuits of capital is that we need writers and artists to be able to tell these stories. Right. Uh, we need community spaces where people can share these stories with one another. And if there's a role for um, a university professor to play in that, you know, like we know that by putting things on our syllabi, we are able to lend cultural capital to certain kinds of stories. Um, I don't want to think of that in a purely transactional sense. Right. But there's no way to not think of the ways that we are in transaction. Yeah. Um, so I would say that that to me feels like an important um, place. And in that sense, I really try to put on my syllabi the work of first time authors because I want to keep that work in circulation. Mm-hmm. You know, I learned that from Barbara Christian. She says in the race for theory, like, why do I write about some of these? Um, of course, you, you know, blurbing her. So not mm-hmm. directly quoting her, but. Um, it's important to keep the work of Black feminist writers in circulation um, and to take it seriously and to value the different kinds of narrative and plotting and prose choices um, or poetics Mm. that it makes because that matters, right? Like that has to continue to be part of where we gain intellectual, cultural, political, ethical life. Yeah, and I can completely relate to it. Um, Every time I teach any course, but mostly every time I teach this course called Introduction to World Literature, I contend with these questions and issues in many cases when I'm introducing students at a U.S. university uh, to world literature. It is true, they have not even read authors who would be thought canonical. Um, And yet... I try to uh, sort of balance whatever references I'm making to the canon with uh, newer authors, uh, emerging authors and first time authors because of some of the reasons you articulated. So, um, yeah, so, you know, syllabi making is a very important part of pedagogy, which you started talking about. Um, Are there some other pedagogical tools that you commonly use which uh, engage uh, frameworks of thinking around, um, you know, broadly what you're talking about uh, is related to social justice. So um, I guess I'm asking you to think about uh, how does your pedagogy engage with frameworks of social justice? I have to admit that at this time of like a sort of heightened and corporatized initiative (laughs) around diversity, equity and conclusion, I've become suspicious of the term social justice. Because I wonder what any of us truly mean by it. And I know that most of us actually don't share the same politics around what justice is and how to achieve it. Mm-hmm. And exactly to your point, right? Like one of the biggest challenges I face and I think many of us face 
in our teaching is how little students know about the world outside of the U.S. Mm-hmm. But I also don't hold them responsible for this as individuals. Right. Because there's an immense and nefarious infrastructure that's absolutely committed to producing both ignorance and amnesia. Mm-hmm. So practically in my classroom, that means that my students and I are working toward understanding how knowledge production itself operates and how it mm-hmm. is itself a political project that can be utilized toward different, sometimes competing means of domination and resistance. And that as people who are gathering to learn in the heart print, in the heart of an empire, we have to abolish our empire's mythologies about the people and the blueprints across Africa and Asia and the Caribbean. So I kind of always feel like I'm on this tightrope of teaching <laughs> students how to deconstruct the hegemonic script that condition our lives. And at the same time, showing them that marginalized people are always resisting the forms of domination they encounter. Mm-hmm. So in all truth, it becomes like a practice of hope because the students learn about the insidiousness of like colonialism, capitalism, and slavery. They become so disheartened. And I can't blame them because there's so much happening that makes it seem like we will not be able to turn the tide. So I think it's it's critical to show that long history of resistance and revolution that their K through 12 education mainstream U.S. culture is hidden from them. So that balance of particularity and difference. So like when we turn to a postcolonial literary text, we're reading it um, both for its critique of colonization, but also possibly for the critique of its um, its own society's ongoing structures of power and dominance. Right. Like that we don't have to force it into a binary Mm. of, well, it's post it's a postcolonial text. So like everything in the postcolonial nation is wonderful and that there there's nothing to be concerned with. But then that's also feels like a trap Mm. because to critique the dynamics of the postcolonial nation state seems to, um, you know, like catalyze this kind of savior of like, we in the U.S. have so much liberty and they over there have nothing, so we have to save them, right? It's, it's a really tight rope is, is, is the gist of it. And I think part of that is like creating the conditions in which they feel empowered um, to engage with difference in a meaningful way without kind of positioning themselves as the arbiters of, what liberation or justice look like for everybody. Yeah, um, I guess uh, putting it more in a more simplistic way, um, you know, whoever is in power right now, U.S. with being a culturally and economically and politically powerful place, like they don't get to dictate, or we in the U.S. don't get to dictate what good life looks like for people all over the world. And even the savior complex you mentioned has a long history and um, that is another thing that um, I try to teach and talk about in more literature class. I have to because, you know, that's yeah. that's an important part. It's absolutely it. necessary because, like, the, the white man's burden is the savior <laughs> complex, right? Like, colonialism has long used the savior complex as one of its critical narrative tools. Early on, when we were talking about your relationship with Indian Ocean Studies, you mentioned um, something about languages, right? Like one of the challenges of Indian Ocean Studies is there were so many languages. There are so many languages spoken all over that uh, a scholar, in order to even engage in the field, uh, 
probably needs to be able to engage with clearly more than one language. And you, I know you have uh, co-translated um, some work into Urdu and you have, have you done uh, a lot of translation projects? Do you have a multilingual training? And how, how are these things influencing your research and pedagogy? I have to say that the, the work that I co-translated into Urdu, um, Ngugi Wathiango's uh, short story, The Upright Revolution or Why Humans Walk Upright, was a collaboration first between myself and my parents. Um, and all of us are amateurs to translation. So like that is the only published work of translation that any of us share. Um, and to my <laughs> knowledge, the only active work of translation that any of us have done. Um, and I kind of came to it, obviously, because I have interests in East African literature. And at that time, I was writing a dissertation chapter about Ngugi's novel, Wizard of the Crow. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was also feeling, I think, in part because of how important performance um, and storytell- oral storytelling and multilingualism is to his own work, um, that I was starting to feel antsy in my research and writing about working in a colonial language only. My own scholarship is mm-hmm. largely um, focused on the Anglophone novel. I, I was missing Urdu, a language that you know I lived in and spoke and wrote and read in as a child. But once I moved to the US um, as a 10 year old, I really didn't have the same exposure to it in the same, mm. you know, like frequency or depth, especially. And then serendipitously, I met Googie at a conference where he was delivering a keynote. And sometime after that, he came to UMass Amherst to give a talk. And some of his graduate students got to meet him. Mm. And I said, you know, I've been thinking maybe I should translate your short story because there's an open call for folks to translate it into any language. Um, And the Gelada project had kind of begun as one that involved both professional and amateur translators. So I think that also empowered me as a space um, that was really inviting. And so with his encouragement, I proposed Mm -hmm. to my mother, hey, let's try this out. It would be a good way for you to get to know what it is that I do with all my time and for us to get to do something together. Um, So we started working on it during one of our rare visits with each other. And because we were doing it, part of the translation in a car ride, my father, who was in the car, just jumped in because we (laughs) we were just talking. Um, And he, you know, would hear a word and have something to say about it. Um, It turned out to be much more fun than I would have thought. Um, And to date is perhaps the only time that I can remember us gathering around a literary text like that. Um, And we all agreed that we really needed each other because I understood the most about the literary traditions we were working in. But my parents definitely had a more robust Urdu vocabulary than I do because they both Mm. have more formal training in it and have spoken it across generations, right? Like to their own parents, to me. The scope of their language is just more. Um, My father is especially good at helping us find the right words for some of the language dealing with games and sports, whereas my mother and I debated the choices less at the level of individual vocabulary words and more at how they were fitting into the prose style and narrative arc. And I really needed their help with typing it because I've never typed in Urdu because when I went to school and had to write in Urdu, it was all handwriting based. It's (laughs) amazing how the technology of the Urdu keyboard on an iPhone app um, was so decisive in my ability to read Urdu with clarity um, because the curvatures of the letters joining one another on the keyboard really strained my ability to spell properly. (laughs) Uh, 
So all of this shapes my research and teaching practices, I think, in a number of key ways that ultimately cohere around this idea of refusing mastery. Uh, Julietta Singh in her book, Unthinking Mastery, calls upon us to, quote, distance ourselves from mastery. And from that point of departure, directionality becomes infinite. So in that sense, being multilingual my whole life with shifting relationships of fluency to the languages that I move in reminds me to privilege collaboration. It emphasizes contingency and mutability and highlights, I think, the need for speculation as this like really critical modality of all facets of life. So in the quotidian practice of research, that means I don't write alone, literally. Um, Co-writing Zooms have saved my life in the last few years. So many friends and colleagues have read numerous iterations of the things that have made it into print and often done so at very short notice. So thanks to those folks. And then in teaching, it means I encourage my students to workshop their work at all stages, whether it's collaborative annotation on a shared reading text through a tool called Hypothesis, peer review, and to reflect critically upon and revise the work over the course of the semester, even if I'm not formally teaching a writing intensive course. And then, you know, my current institution um, is a minority serving institution, and that offers a real um, pleasure because so many of my students are navigating multiple linguistic and social contexts all the time anyway. Mm -hmm. And so I want to honor the abundance that they bring into my classroom with that. If we're reading a work in translation, it gives us the opportunity to ask the person in the space with us to compare to the original text, which mm -hmm. sort of on the spot query, like, okay, what are the different things this phrase or word could mean? And in doing so, um, it sort of shifts the subject matter expertise hat from me onto that other students, which I think is both powerful for me and the students. That's amazing. Yeah. Um... I also really enjoyed the story about your parents uh, working with you on the translation. Can you talk to us a little bit about how narrative studies or can what we can do better to understand Indian Ocean cultures? For me, um, narrative studies, of course, critical to understanding Indian Ocean cultures, in part because of how much Indian Ocean narrative traditions can give us in that they are um, set in different languages that have been interacting with one another um, often and over very long periods of time. And many of those languages have really robust literary traditions of their own in a textual archive, as well as a non-textual. Definitely in 2021, we're living in this um, renewed moment of where performance has these new stakes for us um, or like has revitalized stakes that, you know, in earlier traditions where theater was really big were important. Um, I think there is a, among my students, I definitely notice this desire for the visual in a number of ways, right? Like they really privilege sight and visuality as a as a critical tool and it, it rather than raising questions of what is realism <laughs> right i think they tend to default to thinking like if i can see it then it's more accurate or it's authentic mm. and so i think mediating between the sort of multiple language traditions and narrative traditions across oral language traditions performative language traditions and textuality um, is something that they're sort of like co-inhabitation is something that Indian Ocean cultural studies, I think, like really brings um, to the fore um, rather than sort of 
overprivileging the textual, which I think, you know, like having grown up as an academic in an English department, I've really grown up in 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 the space of we, you know, like the the written word is the word, is the mm-hmm. only word. The sort of protagonist of a text is a singular protagonist. And like we can deal with a reliable or unreliable narrator, but that might be the limits of it. And of course, like there's a part of me that's being crass right now because <laughs> narrative study is more abundant than that. But I think what I get from the Indian Ocean Literary Studies context, even the one that I engaged largely in English, is that there is no single protagonist. Like the story is never really like that invested at the scale of an individual or their interiority. That there, even when there is largely like one narrator that you know like a close first person narration like that person's relationship to the world is more plural and being mediated quite often by other human characters but also lots of spiritual influences or other kind of like ecological influences and that they aren't really sitting in the kind of tension that they do often in sort of hegemonic American or British literary tradition that I sort of had to work through as an English PhD. And that, you know, just because like nature, different natural elements are a huge part of it, or um, the wind speaking to you as an element in a novel, right? Like mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily just make it magical realism. Because <laughs> yeah. I think there, there's this like, interesting copying function that happens like people come to know magical realism they're like okay everything like that is magical realism right so I think it's a challenge because I sometimes wonder um what how to how to think of certain generic qualities in the text like where do they constitute a genre and if they don't constitute a genre in an anglophone literary tradition then how to how to name that genre in a multilingual (laughs) literary tradition right like I think it really highlights this is where translation becomes important I think it it highlights the kind of mediation that something has to have in order for it to be legible to the audience that you need it to be legible to while not sort of being extracted by that audience yeah I mean so many things you were saying strikes me at the different levels of course while studying narratives the form of the novel or what we call the novel looks very different coming out of different traditions places and languages and along with that a lot of terms that we use in narrative studies there's no denying that many of those terms have come out of studying primarily anglo-american texts and so these terms, when they're even applied to uh, literatures coming out of you know, other countries, other regions, places, the terms do not exactly fit. I also creatively write, and even in that context, uh, you know, it's fascinating that the vocabulary of the creative writing workshop is so trained on the same vocabulary as Anglo-American narrative studies often. And so if you are trying to work with a form that is different and that is doing different things, since there is no vocabulary to describe it, it is thought of as, you know, in the workshop sense of it, wrong or, you know, uh, I'm thinking not, of the showing yeah. versus telling debate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sure that's like very fraught as somebody who is both a creative writer and a critic. But, you know, like, again, like these kinds of things all pose questions for how our students then come to engage with the text because they too have been so socialized in an Anglo American tradition because the kind of text that we might teach in a world literature class or a post colonial literary studies class 
is likely something that most people will not have encountered in high school yeah. English classes. So they're really trained away from noticing the specificity of the text in front of them and are very much conditioned to project their idea of narrative structure, of plotting, of characterization onto the text. So they actually don't end up reading the thing that they're reading. They're just engaged in this process of projection and then fitting that narrative into how it does or does not meet that projection. Uh, the line you said, there is no one protagonist. And this is so true of, you know, some of the authors you mentioned, like Amitabh Ghosh's work, or Amitabh Ghosh in The Great Derangement talks about um, chance, for instance, that in the Anglo-American realist tradition, chance is thought of as a hallmark of maybe a poor narrative, but how uh, important it is in some other cultural contexts, and especially in the context of climate change and so on. So yeah, forms of narratives um, are very, very different. And I guess uh, one of the things somebody like you may be doing along the way or along with your students is uh, trying to almost create a new vocabulary or new frameworks to understand um, what you have at hand instead of you know this process of projection. Well, Nilofer, this was great. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you and um, I'm sure our listeners uh, did as well. So are you on social media? Where can people follow you to learn more about your research and maybe not research? <laughs> Thanks so much. Um, this is a really like lovely and invigorating conversation. So thank you again for inviting me. Audiences can find me on Twitter where I tweet at underscore Nilofer, N-E-E-L-O-F-E-R. And in addition to posting about what I'm up to in terms of research and teaching, I often post photos of my dog, Hathi. So <laughs> dog lovers, please welcome. Thank you again, Nilofer. Our listeners, thank you for joining us on yet another episode of Narrative for Social Justice podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation and hope that you will also tune in for our other episodes that are live on Anchor and Spotify. You can follow us on Twitter at Narrative4SJ and also we have a Facebook page. Thank you once again for listening to us.